Well, about 42 years ago, God broke into my life with a revelation of the depth of his love for me. I didn't know much about him back then. All I knew was that he was real. I couldn't deny that anymore, and that he loved me more than I could ever realize. And after that experience, I wanted to get to know this God better, so I opened the Bible. I really didn't know where to go, so I went to the Gospels, and I spent some time in the Gospels. In those Gospels, I found God again in the person of Jesus. And so for the past four decades or so, Jesus has just captivated me. I mean, when you read what he did, when you read what he taught, and you see it through the lens of the scriptures or theology or history, when you look at Jesus' life, you cannot help but see the conclusion. He really is God in the flesh, and that's what he told us, too. And he really does have the words of eternal life. These things are not concocted by some kind of human design. These things are revealed by God in a divine decree. Now, early on, there were 12 men who were given close access to him and probably about five or six women who were given close access to him. And one of those men was named John, and he was perhaps the one who knew Jesus best. He was called the beloved disciple. And late in the first century, somewhere probably in the 90s, John took upon himself to write a different sort of gospel, one that wasn't like the other gospels that had already been written. He wanted to write a gospel that, that showed Jesus in his life and his teaching in a way that clearly revealed God's glory, and that's exactly what he did. Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at that gospel. We saw the prologue as John talked about the Word who was with God in the beginning and who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We, we, we heard about him when he, these words he said to Nathaniel, when he said, hey, you're excited about this, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So many things in the first couple of chapters in, in, uh, in John's Gospel. Last week, we heard Jesus speak of this same type of thing as he used huge water jars that were used for ritual purification. He transformed them into vessels that carried the new wine of the Messianic kingdom. And today, we're going to hear the next story, one that's very familiar to us, but one I think that has a, a very profound uh, application point for us all today. And it's going to take place at a very special place called the temple. I'm looking at John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22 this morning. I'll be reading from the old NIV. There's so many choices out there. Pick your version, and you can follow along with me as I read. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. Notice that he used the whip on livestock, not on people. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him a sign. What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture 
and the words that Jesus had spoken. There's a powerful teaching in here, but before we can actually get into it, we need to kind of get a running start to understand what John's readers already knew. And it begins with the temple. The temple, of course, was a place where God lived. It was his house, and visiting that temple gave a person access to God in a way that he couldn't get anywhere else. It made that individual nearer to God. Now, the first temple, of course, was a tent. It was a tabernacle that moved with Moses in the wilderness and then was set up at one location for a period of time. But under Solomon's reign, that tent turned into a stone structure. And even Solomon said that he knew that this stone structure could not contain the God of the universe, but it was the place where his name would dwell. And when people came, they could pray to that place and even pray toward that place when they were far away from it because they believed that's where God could be accessed. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Solomon's temple in around 586 B.C. when he took all the people of Israel away from, to exile. And then in 520-ish or so, when the people of Israel came back, they began building the second temple. It was finished around 515 B.C. It was much scaled down from Solomon's work, so much so that those who remembered Solomon's temple, Ezra tells us, wept when they saw how small the second temple actually was. Fast forward about 500 years to 19 or 20 BC. Herod was in charge of that region at the time. He was a great builder. He wanted to make a name for himself. And so he thought he was going to, to expand that second temple and make it great. Without interrupting the daily sacrifices, he, he expanded the courtyards by filling in. He made a retaining wall of huge stones and filled it with fill so that he could have a nice flat surface on top of that mountaintop. The work was eventually done about 4 BC. All the primary things were done by 4 BC, but there were other things on the punch list that were needed that weren't done until about 63 AD. And when it was all said and done, this temple was one of the largest sacred sites in the Roman Empire. And in Jesus' day, it was not just the place to access the Father, but it was a place of significant Jewish pride, and understandably so. It was a remarkable building. On the screen, you've already seen it as our best guess as to what the finished work looked like. You can see that there were colonnades around the outside, roofed areas, and then you can see in the very center of that open space, the large T-shaped structure is the temple, and in front of that are the various courts. Let's zoom in to see them. And as we do that, think about concentric circles, because that center circle is what everyone's after. That's where God is. He is there in his holy of holies, in his throne room, in the mercy seat. Only one priest, one time each year, could enter into that circle. Outside of that circle was the holy place. This is where the priests did their work. Outside of that circle was the, was the, the court of the, of the priests, and then the court of the uh, Israelites, or the court of the men. That's not shown here. Then the court of the women. And then outside of all of that, in that final concentric circle, was the court of the Gentiles. And between the court of the Gentiles and the courts for all the Israelites, there was a wall that surrounded the whole area. And on that wall, multiple places was a sign. And that sign reads, no foreigner is allowed beyond this point. Those who pass by this point are responsible for their own death. Because only Abraham's children were given the closest access to God. This entire area is about 172,000 square yards in size. 
In other words, 29 football fields could be fit in various configurations inside this area. And this way, it's here in the court of the Gentiles that the uh, religious leaders thought that they would put a marketplace. And it makes sense why, right? I mean, people, pilgrims coming from miles and miles away couldn't bring their own sacrifice for the temple, so they had to have a place to buy it. And then folks coming from different countries were bringing currency, currency that often had some offensive symbols on it that could not be used in the temple. And so there had to be a way to exchange that currency. And so it made sense that they set up a marketplace where pilgrims could take care of their religious obligations. It was practical, understandable, it was really efficient, but it wasn't what God wanted his house to be used for. Now, logic suggests that the market did not cover the entire area of the court of Gentiles. That was just a huge space, and there were many other things that needed to take place in that area. But I was thinking, where might that, where, where might that marketplace have been? So this is just me thinking. It could have been anywhere on there, but I've shaded a green area over there on the southern side of the temple where the main entrances are is where they likely put the market. That's my guess. Maybe it was somewhere else. But the idea is that it took up a corner or one section of that entire area, not the, entire, not the, not the entirety of it. And also, I think the story details, uh, that was we read it in the different, uh, different Gospels, Reveal that Jesus disrupted this marketplace. He did not shut it down. He didn't cut it out for the couple of days that it was supposed to be there. He was able to disrupt it. Because if, if he actually was able to shut it down, he would need to take over the temple guard, the, the Roman garrison in Jerusalem, and, um, and occupy the Antonia Fortress on the north side of the court. He didn't do that because that wasn't his goal. His goal wasn't to shut down the market. His goal was to be an Old Testament prophet who would speak words to the people by doing something that was outlandish. And what he did was part of his message. So, with all that behind us, what was the message? What was it that Jesus was trying to say? Well, thankfully, John tells us in verse 17. He says, his disciples remembered, this is their interpretation of what Jesus was doing, his disciples remembered that it was written... Uh, zeal for your house will consume me. This verse comes from Psalm 69.9, and it has a second half to the same verse, and that is this, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. So by connecting Jesus' action to Psalm 69.9, John is telling us what Jesus was doing, that his zeal for the Father's house would lead him to be consumed. This does not mean that Jesus walked into the temple area, saw the marketplace, and was so filled with a righteous indignation and an anger that he gave all those people a piece of his mind. That's not what this means. The word consume does not refer to the intensity of the emotion Jesus felt, but to the lethal hostility that the zeal evoked from his adversaries. You see, when Jesus pointed out the ways that these leaders were offending God, that suddenly made him a target of their offense too. And their offense would rise with such intensity that it would one day consume him and take his life. Now, God's anger, wrath, and judgment certainly can be inferred in this passage, but what John wants us to see, the primary thing, is that what is going on here has to do with Jesus' life. And it's confirmed with our Lord's response, right? 
When they asked him to give a sign to affirm that he has the authority to do this, he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. That's going to be the sign. Now, everyone at that time thought that he was, understandably so, thought that he was talking about the stone temple, right? But John's got to come in again and tell us, no, he's not talking about the stone temple. He's talking about the temple of his body that would one day be destroyed, but three days later would be raised again. Talk of destroying God's home was extremely offensive to the Jewish people, and talk of building it in three days, that was blasphemous, because they knew that only God could build his house that quickly. And so I think what Jesus is doing here is the same thing he did in several other places in John. He's using this moment to imply his deity publicly. Jesus is the place where God can be found and the only way to access him. And in the end, it's his sacrifice alone that is the only one sufficient enough to open the way for the world to come to the Father. Now, no one could act against the temple and its leaders like Jesus did and not expect to have some kind of severe retaliation. Jesus knew what he was doing. I mean, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, we read how Jesus walks into the temple and looks around. He's surveying the scene. He's doing a recon mission. Eh, this is not the time for what I'm going to do. I'll do it tomorrow. He goes back to Bethany. Jesus knew what he was doing. He was trying to provoke something with the leadership and with the people that he wanted to get across. He was intentionally bringing this confrontation into the temple leaders for a singular issue. Who has the authority to decide how the Father's house will be used? And so the leaders ask him, what gives you the right to tell us what we can and cannot do? Does Jesus have the right to correct and direct their actions? Of course, the Gospel of John from John 1, 1 all the way through is giving a resounding, yes, he does. That's who he is. Through his resurrection, Jesus proved that he has the authority over the temple. He's got authority over the Sabbath. He's got authority over all things. He's got authority over you and me in all created order, both what can be seen and what cannot be seen. He is its creator and its author. Jesus is the Lamb of God, chapter 1, verse 29. So too, he is the temple through whom the indwelling presence of God can be fully realized for all people. He is the only point of access for us to meet and get to know who this God is. And that's why, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, why I am captivated by Jesus. Because when you look at what he said, when you consider what he did, there is no other conclusion. He is God in human form. And he does contain the words of eternal life. That was John's conclusion, too. And in chapter 20, verse 31 of his gospel, he said, I wrote these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and by believing, you might have life in his name. Now, the only way we get his life is when we surrender to him, right? And surrender is a statement of authority. And so the question that Jesus was asking of the religious leaders and of the people that day is a question he's asking of us as well. Does Jesus have the right to correct and direct our own lives too? It's interesting, but on the day of Pentecost, 
like a rushing wind. That was the day that the Holy Spirit left the temple of stone and moved into the temple of human hearts. You remember that story in Acts chapter 2. By the way, I happen to think that it took place in the house. What house was big enough for 120 new, new believers in Christ? What house was big enough to have the entire world present to hear them speaking God's glory in various tongues? It was the house of the Father. It was God's house. They were in the temple court somewhere. And when that spirit raced into their hearts, they became a temple. That's why, that's why Paul could ask the Corinthians, do you not know that you are a temple of God? The spirit of God lives in you? So for me, I think for all of us, the question suddenly gets very personal. Who has the authority to decide how the place in which God dwells will be used? The answer is obvious, right? It's Jesus, right? But there's this follow-up to that. Do my actions, do my words, do my attitudes, do my relationships, do they match the answer that I've just given? During the pandemic, we've spent a significant amount of time resting in the topic of God's love for us and how that love impacts us and how we respond back to God with love and how we learn to love one another and love all people. To put it in the context of our text, our passage today, we spent a lot of time considering what sort of things and actions and attitudes should be found in God's temple, should be found in our lives, should be experienced in our community. I think we all know that there is a very real danger here in what I'm talking about, and I feel this danger, is that so many of us, probably me more than anyone else, uh, are prone at that point to make a list of rules. 613 laws that I've got to follow to show that I am obeying God and doing the right thing. Certain expectations that I've got to keep. But that is a legalistic trap that goes nowhere for us. So rather than make a list of rules we've got to follow, our job with the Holy Spirit living in us is to listen. To learn to listen for Jesus' voice and then to learn to listen to what he does and even invite him to challenge us in some ways, to challenge our attitudes, to challenge our thoughts, to challenge our, our conclusions about things, because every one of us, I believe, is a heretic at some level, right? Every one of us is doing things and saying things and holding things that we think are honoring God, like the marketplace. This is honoring God. It helps people. No, it's not. We think we're honoring God, but we're actually an offense to him, and we need the Lord Jesus sometimes to overturn a few tables in our life. An altar is a surface upon which an offering to God is placed. And while our sanctuary in the Reformed tradition does not have an altar here, there's no piece of furniture, there's no place to go, there is a, an altar that every Christian needs to go to every day. The Apostle Paul talks about it in Romans 12.1. But in response to God's mercy, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Every day we go before the Lord to hear from him about the things he wants to see in his temple, the things he wants to see in our lives, the things he wants to see out of our lives. We pick up and let go. And rather than compare our lives then to a list of all these different rules, we seek to listen and surrender our lives to our loving Savior and trust him to guide us. And then as we hear from him, we go to that figurative altar and with praise and thanks for who he is, we dedicate ourselves again to the Lord as his servants. 
This is one of the most difficult truths I need to learn in this. And I'll tell you, I have to relearn it several times every month. And it's simply this. When Jesus comes to me, or when he comes to you, to share something that needs to be corrected, something that I need to get rid of, something I need to pick up, he always comes with love and grace. That is his motivation. That is his attitude. It's all about love and grace for us. He wants to see us experience the flourishing life that he made for us to know. Now, for those who may ignore his voice for a period of time, and you've been uh, pushing him off to the side, his love might feel like overturned tables. That's called the discipline of the Lord. And Hebrews 12, 11 reminds us, God disciplines us for our own good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the, t at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So, we all confess, we all repent. Whether we confess and repent very quickly after the Lord reveals an area, or whether we, we take years to do so, God responds to his wayward child the same way as the, prodigal father, the prodigal's father responded to the prodigal's return. He runs out to meet you and gives you a warm embrace and lets you know of his love for you. Now that kind of response is so foreign to our human experience. I mean, there's no vindictiveness, there's no anger, there's no, there's no sense of uh, passive moving things around on you. No, it's just this full, beautiful, loving embrace. It's different from what we experience in the world, but it shouldn't be a surprise to us because that's who God tells us that he is, right? In the Old Testament, Exodus 36, God says that he is the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. In the New Testament, God, Jesus, who's God in human form, Jesus says that he is gentle and humble of heart. Jesus' welcome, his embrace, is what we expect when we, when we encounter and work with him. So when Jesus speaks to you about the condition of your temple, when he points out things that should or shouldn't be in your life, it's always done in love and grace. So we need to help each other train ourselves to listen for his voice so we can learn that which one it is, because it's not the angry one, it's not the one that's defacing, I won't go into that right now. Listen for his voice and then listen to his voice to do what he tells us to do. And when that's all said and done, we go to the altar in gratitude for what he has done and offer ourselves again and again and again as a living sacrifice. Generally speaking, there are two categories and most folks find themselves in one of either of these two categories. First of all, there's the folks who are here even today who have never responded to the life Jesus offers. For those who can recognize that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection provide the payment for our own sin. Our sin keeps us from being able to know God the Father. But Jesus' life, death, and resurrection pays the price for our sin. And when we recognize that, we go, oh, and we trust that, not our own effort to make ourselves right and good, but to trust in Christ's effort, his righteousness, his goodness is given to us, imputed to us, so that we can stand clean before the Father. When that happens, we receive a new, indestructible life in an eternal relationship with God, a life and a relationship that even death cannot stop. 
there's another group as well. They are the ones who have responded and who now seek to listen to the Lord on a daily basis. Some folks are listening well, others are not listening all that well. And for those who are not listening well, you likely know what he's been saying to you. You know what he's been talking about, the marketplace that you've set up in your own heart. You likely know the things he's asking you to let go of or the things he's asking you to pick up. It might be an attitude or an action or a possession or maybe it's a relationship you need or one that you shouldn't have. Most Christians know what it is that Jesus is saying to them. And so the, the question isn't, what's the Lord saying? The question is, do I believe that he has the authority to correct and direct how I live my life? There are two categories. There are those who have never responded to the Lord's gift of new life and those who need to respond to it every day by listening to his voice, doing what he says, and offering themselves as a living sacrifice in gratitude to all that Christ has done for them. No matter what category you are in today, we all have a response that we can make. And so, would you please join with me in prayer as we respond to this amazing lesson, this teaching that Jesus has given us today. And as we pray, please remember that Jesus is not surprised or offended by where you are. He knows you. He knows your weaknesses, he knows your addictions, he knows your struggles, and yet he loves you more than you can ever know. He knows the truth that every one of us is hurting, every one of us is broken by our sin, and every one of us needs Jesus. So with that in mind, let's make this a personal prayer. Let's talk to him in the first person. God, I need you. I want to be like the disciples who believe the scriptures and the words that you've spoken. I see your grace, I see my need, and I'm sorry for my sin, for the ways I've offended you by what I've allowed into my life and what I've kept out of my life. And I'm sorry for the way I've lived for me and not for you. I now, as best as I can, put my trust in, or perhaps I reaffirm my trust in, your Son, Jesus Christ. I believe that in him I come face to face with you, that through his death and rest and resurrection, he rescues me. He makes me right with you. He brings me into relationship with you, and he makes me the place where your spirit dwells. I put my trust in his gift of forgiveness and new life. I want to be that living sacrifice. I want to turn from a life lived for me and choose a life that lives for you. You love me more than I can ever know, and you alone have the full authority over me. So lead me into the life you intend for me, Lord, and help me learn to listen to what you say, and then empower me to put what you say into practice. We come to you in your precious and beautiful name. Amen.